This morning we're looking at John chapter 17, verses 20 to 26. Jesus praying for all believers. So we arrive at the end of this beautiful chapter where Jesus, where Jesus wraps up his, his priestly prayer to the Father. We have mentioned indeed how privileged we are to be able to listen in on his prayer to the Father. This, this beautiful moment, tender moment, just before, hours before he's about to be crucified. We looked at how Jesus opened his prayer, dedicating himself, consecrating himself for the sacrifice and anticipating the moment that he will be rejoining the Father just like it was before the creation of the world, just like the good old days. Then he prays in verses 16, uh, verse 6, sorry, to 19, he prays for his disciples that they be protected, not in the sense of protected from, you know, creating a bubble around them like we saw last week, but they be protected from the evil one and that they be sanctified. They're in the world, but not of the world. And now in these last six verses, he prays for all who will believe in him through the ages. They encompass from that time those who will believe through the ministry of the disciples and the ones after them and so on and so forth for 2,000 years and counting. This includes, brothers and sisters, you and me. We are in this prayer. So last week we also introduced the the topic of, of unity amongst his disciples, which was uh, very much in Jesus' heart. And we spoke about the difference in unity, uh, like if you tie the tails of two cats together, uh, you have a union, and then you decide to throw, it up, throw them over a clothesline, and you know what happens. It's not very pretty. So now I'm going to get a phone call from the RSPCA. That's okay. I haven't done it, by the way. I'm just saying it's a figure of speech, okay? So settle down. So let's talk about Christian unity. What is it and how does it display itself? First of all, it is based on our shared life in Jesus Christ. Based on our shared life in Jesus Christ. My prayer is not for them alone, for his disciples alone, he's saying. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That all of them may be one, just as you are in me and I'm in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Last week we reminded ourselves that we are given as a gift from the Father to the Son. Those who come to faith in Jesus are given over as a gift from the Father to the Son. So, so we are a present. It's, it's wonderful, isn't it? And, and, and Jesus prays that all those who believe may be one. Now, the expectations are high. How high? Well, the same type of union that the Father has with the Son. Nothing less, nothing more. That's a pretty high expectation, isn't it? Now, 
There is a, I don't know whether, I need to preach a separate message on this, but there is a movement in our world, and it's happened since the hippie days, and it goes back to Eastern religions, to Buddhism and Hinduism. It's about oneness, that the whole world be one. Whereas the Christian faith is, is, is different. There is God and there is the race of creation. It's a twoism. Whereas there is a movement for the West to become like the Eastern religions. I'll need to spend more time on it, but just understand that this is what is happening. And uh, maybe a song um, that reminds you of this is a song by John Lennon that uh, he had this... And he was, the, the, the words in his utopian dream, it's actually one of the most recorded songs in, uh, in the world. The song is, Imagine. And this is one of the lines. He said, you may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join me and the world will, leave, will be as one. And the world will be as one. There's that one-ism, right? There is no male, no female. Oneism, there is no creation and God. Creation is actually God. Oneism, and so on and so forth, okay? But let's leave that for another time. But that is essentially what paganism is about. It, 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 it's, it's very much the, the way that the pagans look at the world. And yet for all their desire to, to be one... Never has the world been so divided as it is now, right? Families, society, uh, this group, that group, and, and minorities here, minorities there. We are breaking apart at the seams rather than this unified society, this utopian ideal that we've been sold. We've actually been sold a dud. And the sooner we realise that, the better I think society will be. Because, you see, this is how it was like in the days of the early church when this letter was written. This is exactly what it was like. The Roman world was a pagan world, highly sensual, highly divided in classes, in education, in power, the slaves and the free, so divided. And yet, soon people started realising that paganism offers no hope, no future, only misery. And there was a group of believers that started in Jerusalem and then after Pentecost, the gospel spread and society slowly but surely was getting transformed because the world was seeing how these believers were living. The unity amongst the believers was a drawing card for this world, for this pagan world. Most of them obviously had very little in this life. But what they had inside was priceless and it was attractive. They had Jesus in their hearts. Now, we need to clarify a little bit more about what this whole thing of unity looks like in the Bible and uh, we might, there's two ways we can look at it. There is two ways, sorry, uh, 
two types of unity is what I'm trying to say. There is the positional unity and there is the practical unity. Now, we are one with the triune God who has already taken up residence within us. That is a positional unity, which is a fact. And, and, and Jesus' prayer was answered when the Holy Spirit baptized all believers into the one body. The Apostle Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We are one body. Yet Jesus also prays that believers may be perfected in unity. He goes to talk about this in verse 23 in this, in this chapter, which implies we perfected, it implies a progress, it implies a growth. So it's like sanctification. We are positionally sanctified in Christ and we are even called saints. Fact is, we all still, as saints, we still have a lot of growing up to do in the matter of sanctification. And one of the things that will test our sanctification, our sainthood, is when we try to get along together, when we have disagreements. The implication is that unity, while real, it is not yet perfect. And sad to say that too often we tend to highlight the things that are different, that we defer, that we don't agree with, rather than the things that are truly uniting us and the things that we have in common. Now, there are two, and, and I suppose one of the things that, that will test our unity is on the matter of Christian doctrine. First of all, then, we need to be pretty clear on these issues. The core essential truths and the non-core non-essentials. The core essential truths are necessary for salvation. To deny these things would be heresy. It would be a denial of the faith. All true Christians, all true believers have to agree on these truths. They include the inspiration of the Holy Scriptures, the Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, the full deity and humanity of Jesus Christ, his sin and death, heaven and hell, his substitutionary atonement, his bodily resurrection, his second coming and salvation by grace through faith alone apart from works. We've got to get that pretty right in order to have fellowship with one another and for our church to have fellowship with other churches who don't agree on this stuff will be very difficult. Um, just last Thursday, we remembered the Reformation when um, on the 31st of October, 1517, 502 years ago, an Augustinian monk named Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses on the door of the church at Wittenberg. And that started a whole wave, which we obviously call the, the Protestant Reformation. And it was a God thing. This wasn't just Martin Luther and you know, his wacky ideas. It started so much because it was, it was God moving to bring the church back to the core of the faith, 
because he had been, you know, just skewed away. And the, and even though these five things were not were not specifically said one, two, three, four, five, they are, these these five solas actually summarise very much the what the Reformation was all about. And these are the things that we have to agree on. The first one is sola scriptura, scripture alone. The Bible alone is our highest authority. We have to agree on that. Sola fide, faith alone. We are saved through faith alone in Christ alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. We are saved by the grace of God alone. Fourth, sola Christus, Christus, Christ alone. Jesus Christ alone is our Lord, Saviour and King. And sola Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone, which is the chief end of man. We live for his glory in all that we do. So these are the things that we, we really need to agree on and say there's no negotiating on these things. However, there is a, there's a second group of non-important, very important truths, but not essential when it comes to salvation. And, and these truths affect how we live as Christians, the way we understand the church, the way we organise the church and the church government. Um, how now, genuine believers disagree on these things. Some examples, for example... On biblical prophecy, eschatological issues. When is Jesus coming back? Is the rapture before? Is it after? When is it going to happen? Uh, views of baptism. We disagree on that. Charismatic gifts. The roles of men and women in the church and in the home. And, and I'm just giving you some of them, Okay. There's, there's a lot more once you get started. As a result, there are different denominations. There are differences between Baptists and Anglicans and Presbyterians and charismatic Pentecostal churches. There are differences among churches within those denominations. So there are denominations, then you have churches that are different from each other within those denominations. The Baptist family is very broad indeed. Then there are differences between individuals within those churches because of the way that God has wired us. How do we get along then? Now, being one body obviously does not mean that we all must look alike, dress alike, talk alike, and enjoy the same kinds of activities. Then we would just have to call ourselves the Amish community, couldn't we? So it's important to, to discern what level of importance are we going to place on this. Oh, is, 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 is this going to be something for which I'm willing to break fellowship with you because... I've suddenly moved it from non-essential, I've moved it up to the, promoted it to core essential, and if I don't agree on this, brother, and some people, their core values are so big that uh, not, nothing is negotiable, nothing. So 
So what are you willing to, to compromise and what are you willing not to compromise? And this brings us to, to Jesus' prayer. In verse 9, we know that Jesus is not praying for the entire world here. This is what he said in verse 9. And, and he's not even praying for an interfaith unity amongst Christians and Buddhists and Hindus and, and Muslims. Christ was not praying for one world church organized under one leader and one church government. Some people actually are pushing for this, believe it or not. Many years ago, a British journalist who became a Christian, Malcolm Mugridge, after his conversion, he was actually an, an avid atheist and communist and, yeah, and he became disenchanted with the whole communism thing. I wonder why. And uh, by, by the way, um, they've taken a survey now and a third of millennials, one third of millennials think that communism is a great idea. All right, one third. This is what our young people are dealing with in the, in the schools, in the universities. They see no problem with it. Uh, I'm, I'm just... One of the things I think we should do is, uh, if, if you have friends like that, just have a talk to Savet and Savi about uh, what communism in, is all about. Maybe they can educate you a bit on that. So Malcolm Muggeridge attended a meeting of the World Council of Churches. World Council of Churches is supposed to be started in 1948, just after the Second World War, and it's trying to bring all the churches together under one body. And uh, Malcolm Argridge attended this Council of World Council of Churches and he said this, he says, they agreed on almost everything because they believed almost nothing. <laughs> Sad, isn't it? Richard Wombrandt stood up in a meeting set to agree on the conditions that were imposed by the takeover of Romania by the Russian communists. And uh, the World Council of Churches in Romania held a meeting and all the churches were supposed to just bow down to the Russians and agree to the agreements that was signed with the communists. And Richard Wombrandt, in conscience, could not agree. He was a Lutheran pastor and he could not agree on this. And he stood up. He stood up and spoke against it. Now, because of this, he and his wife were jailed and tortured on and off for 14 years. Now, my brothers and sisters, many faithful Christians, like the Woundbrands, have paid and are paying right now in China, in many, of, much, in many parts of the Muslim world. They're paying too high a price for their faith for us to easily surrender our faith on matters that are core beliefs. These are the things that we need to stand upon and be willing to, to die on that hill because we cannot surrender these core things of our faith. So while we must strive to love and show love and accept all whom Christ has truly saved, 
we must be careful not to compromise essential biblical truth. And the, I think today, possibly the, the most common danger is not the failure to love, but rather the failure to hold to sound doctrine. Because Jesus said, sanctify them in, in the love. No, he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And we are to speak the truth in love. But we have to speak the truth. And Martin Luther, who we mentioned before, once said, it is better to be divided by truth than to be united by error. And this was a major burden of the apostles of the early church. And indeed, this is why they wrote so many epistles, so many letters, to address issues that were happening in the church about wrong belief. Secondly, what is our unity based upon? It is based on our common glory in Christ. Jesus said in verse 22 and 23, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. There it is again. I in them, you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Now we know that the that our God has a glory that he does not bestow, he is jealous to keep, and he does not share it with anyone else. Isaiah says this in chapter 42. So what does Jesus actually mean when he says, I have given them the glory you gave me? Jesus giving us the glory that the Father gave to Jesus, and then Jesus gives it to us. What, what type of glory is this? Well, we know that all of creation declares the glory of God. We also know that for Jesus, his amazing glory was, yes, he is displayed in all of creation. All that is has been created for him and through him. But his creation is, is, is I suppose, only a small aspect of the wonderful thing that he did on the cross, isn't it? That is where his glory was most magnificently displayed. The glory of God, his love, his character, his justice, his holiness, his grace on full display as he hung on a cross. He also told us, but if you follow me, you must also carry the cross. This means that for us, the true glory, the one that the glory that we can share with the Son, is the glory of service, of lowly service and sacrifice, wherever that might lead. Now, William, William Barclay said this. He said, we, we must never think of our cross, however, as a penalty. We must think of it as our glory. And, and he uses an example and he says, the harder the task we give a student or a craftsman or a surgeon, the more we honour him. So when it is hard to be a Christian, we must regard it as our glory, as our honour given to us by God. Have you ever looked at suffering like that? As a glory? 
that we actually share, we are sharing with Christ in this. Paul said in Romans 8, 17, love these words. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. That is locked in, right? Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed, what? We share in his sufferings. In order that, in order that we may also share in his glory. There, bang, together. Jesus said, I in them, you in me, Christ indwelling us through the Holy Spirit, given to all who truly believe in him. Through the Holy Spirit, the trying God, God the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, indwells every believer. If that is not enough, if that is not enough, Jesus says that the Father has loved us even as he has loved Jesus. What a staggering statement that is. The same measure of the Father's love for the Son is the same measure of the Father's love for us. That'll take a while to sink in. You have to think about and meditate on this. There's no way to measure it. The depth, the width, the height, you, you can't. There's no way to measure it. You can't get your tape out or measure it. John in his letter says, Behold what manner of love the Father has given us to us. Behold means look at it. Just Behold, just sit there and stare and meditate and ponder and marvel. That's what the word behold means. Look at it. Behold what manner of love the Father has given us unto us that we should be called the children of God. You think nobody cares? Nobody loves you? Well, guess what? I've got news for you. And so while we will spend eternity trying to fathom the, the depths of the Father's love for us, it, it should that reality should start influencing, energising us now. Not just then. You can start returning that love for the Father now. And you should. And knowing the righteous Father and enjoying His infinite love indwelling in the presence of Christ with fellow believers, sharing his glory, his, 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 his blessings. It, it, that, yes, it has to start now. But as the saying goes, the best is yet to come, isn't it? The best is yet to come. You ain't seen nothing yet, brothers and sisters. Thirdly, what is our unity based on? It is based on a common mission, verse 23. And he says here, then the world will know. Then the world will know. What will they know? That you sent me and gave and, and have loved them even as you have loved me. Now, the unity that Jesus speaks of is not inwardly focused but it is missional in its intent. 
So, so the unity for which Jesus prays is not for us to form this holy hub here, but he actually has the intention of reaching out. So the, there are two elements to the, to the witness of the church. Firstly, it is the proclamation of the message which is, yet, is, is to be believed in verse 20 and 21, the proclamation of the message. And secondly, the demonstration of the unity. So one is the message and then the demonstration of that message lived out amongst believers. All men will know that you are in me, I'm in you, that you are my disciples, Jesus says, if you love one another. One thing needs the other. If you simply proclaim the gospel without demonstrating the power of the gospel in transformed, loving lives, then it is a theory. It is dry, has no life. Whoever believes the gospel needs a place to belong and to grow in their faith. If, on the other hand, you have this loving community without proclaiming the source of that love, it merely becomes a nice place to chat and mingle and never offend one another because we all love each other so much. It's all gooey, you know. It's all fairy floss. No more than that. Many churches today are like that. What Jesus is saying is that we need both. Proclamation and love. The propositional truth and the exemplary life. Confessional, demonstrative. Speaking the word and displaying the love. Can you see? One and the other. And fourthly, it is based on our common destiny. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Jesus says, Father, I want... And, and, the, and the Greek word that he uses there is actually, actually means I will. And when God wills something, it happens. In, in the garden, Jesus will pray, not my will, but yours be done. He's submitting his will to the will of the Father. But here, Jesus expresses his will that all whom the Father has given him to be with him in heaven to see his glory. That's pretty good. It's more than good. It's amazing. The purpose of that, he says, is to see my glory. Now that sounds as though, you know, we're going to be sitting all around for all eternity just staring at him. Is, is that what heaven's going to be like? It's not what he means. It means... When we see him, we, we shall be like him. That's what John tells us, 1 John 3, 2. And, and, and his glory which we behold is something that we can actually experience in, 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 in a measure, in a full measure then, in some measure now. That's the glory. 
Now, you're probably thinking of heaven as it'll be great to be walking on golden streets with the pearly gates and meet up with your Uncle Bob and Auntie May and the rest of the, the lost ones. You don't even know they're there, probably. Just because the priest said it in a funeral doesn't mean they're there. I hope they're there. You and I unfortunately know as well that some of our very own kids, some of our loved ones will not be in heaven. That is sad. That is sad. Deeply sad. Heartbreaking. So we cannot hold our hope for heaven simply the ones that will or won't be there. As wonderful as it will be to be together with our loved ones. Perfect bodies, perfect everything for all of eternity. That will be great. The best part of heaven has to be that we will be with Jesus forever. To see his glory. Uh, D.L. Moody put it this way. He said that when he got to heaven, he wanted to sit with Jesus for a thousand years and then he was going to ask, where is Paul? <laughs> yeah. Um, he meant that he, what he means is that the greatest thing about heaven will be to be with Jesus. Do you have the same desire to be with your Saviour? If you, let me say, a pointer, a pointer to that would be if you don't have already that desire now, what makes you think that you will have that desire when you get to heaven? As it is in heaven, may it be on earth, right? If you love, if you think you're going to love Jesus just when you get to heaven, no, you better start loving him now. Meditating on his word, spending time with him. then eternity will be the fulfilment of all of that. On uh, Last week we spoke about Martin Lloyd-Jones who was a pastor at uh, Westminster Chapel in London for about 30 years. Now on the 1st of March 1981 he was dying and uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones was the one that preached 48 sermons on John chapter 17. One chapter, 48 messages, all right? That's how good he was. Now, at the, now he's at the end of his life, right? And Lloyd-Jones had lost the ability to speak. And um, he actually indicated that, that he didn't want any more prayers for his recovery. He didn't want more prayers for his recovery. And so he wrote on a piece of paper. He, this is what he wrote. He says, do not hold me back from glory. Do not hold me back from glory. That's good, eh? And as we come to the end of this amazing chapter, this is what Jesus says in verses 25 and 26. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them 
and that I myself may be in them. This is the end of the prayer. There are no more petitions. Jesus simply reports to the Father about the ministry, his mission in the world. We are reminded that our Father is a righteous Father. Our Father is righteous. He is the Father that the Son has revealed to us. The rest of the world continues to live in blindness. However, we are to shine the light and saying, this is where the light is. And this prayer has certainly reminded us of the priorities in Jesus' heart. The glory of God, the sanctity of his people, the unity of the church, the the, the ministry of sharing the gospel with a lost world. And and we, we can't improve on these priorities. And these are the things that were close to Jesus' heart and they have to be close to our heart. How do we best summarise it? And some of the churches actually have this as their motto. To know God and to make him known. To know God and to make him known. Amen. Amen.